Hello and welcome to episode number three of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? I'm Chris Tripodi of DraftAnalyst.com with Tony Polian as always, and we've got a packed show for you tonight. What's going on, Tony? Well, uh, a lot of news coming down the pike as far that will impact the 2019 NFL Draft. A relatively exciting weekend in some instances in the college football world. Uh, once again, we see why Alabama has been so dominant and why they put so many players in the early portion of their draft, the way they drubbed LSU, uh, what was it, the final 29 nothing, and really stamped themselves as, once again, the most dominant team of football uh, in college football of the past 10 years. So a uh, lot to get to. Let's get started. Now, obviously, we have to start with Alabama LSU, as you mentioned, number one versus number three, at least as of last week before the game. Uh, you know, this game was nowhere near as close as those rankings, though, with the Crimson Tide rolling, as you said, a 29 nothing win. Tiger star linebacker Devin White was suspended for the first half after his ejection for targeting the prior week, but it really didn't matter. LSU wasn't stopping Alabama with or without White. The main matchup we were watching was Greedy Williams against the Alabama receivers. And instead of Jerry Judy, he drew Henry, he drew Henry Ruggs in coverage early, and Tua Tagovailoa was not afraid to attack the matchup. Williams was beaten to the inside several times by Ruggs, including Alabama's first touchdown of the game. The Crimson Tide went away from Williams after that drive, and when they did challenge him, he was doing a great job staying downfield with receivers. He did get beat on an inside route again later in the game, this time by Judy after Ruggs left the game with an injury, and there was enough separation on the play for Judy to rack up yards after the catch. Other than those issues, Williams was good in press coverage, came up to defend the run, and didn't allow any other big plays. While it certainly wasn't a banner game for the top-ranked corner, it wasn't a disaster either, and it really seems like he held steady throughout this one. What do you see, Tony? Yeah, for the most part, I was impressed. I mean, the one thing that you got to be worried about is he's a little bit late transitioning off the line. He basically kind of delays to, re- to the receivers move off the line. You saw that on the first touchdown uh, that he gave up to the inside. Even when the play was uh, away from him, when I watched him on the other side of the field, you could see he's a bit late out of his transition. He's got to be coached out of that, or he's going to have to get up on the line of scrimmage and jam opponents. But you know what? I was very impressed with his athleticism, his strength, even his football instincts. You know, he locates the pass in the air. He effectively times his pass defenses. He's not a grabby corner. Oftentimes you see these cornerbacks in college who uh, basically get away with grabbing opponents, which will be penalties at the next level. I didn't see a lot of that. You know, there's just some some things in his game, some fundamentals that he's going to have to fine-tune. But he's a young guy. I, I went into the game wondering whether or not he's going to just be justified as a top 12 pick. I came out thinking absolutely a top 10 selection if he works out well. So I, I was pretty much impressed uh, with Greedy Williams, as I was obviously with the Alabama players. I mean, you look at the quarterback. He's not draft el- eligible to attack of Aloha. He's going to win the Heisman Trophy. And again, very athletic. Great physical skills, but a smart football player. A guy who, uh, I, I mean, had his first interception in the game, uh, first interception of the season against LSU. It wasn't even that bad of an interception. Protects the ball. You also had to be very impressed with the Alabama defensive lineman once again. I mean, Isaiah Bugs and Raekwon Davis show great athleticism. They're very explosive. They didn't have many stats, but, you know, sometimes play, these defensive linemen come out of Alabama and people will say, or scouts will say, they're not great pass rushers, but they're not always asked to rush the passer at Alabama. They're asked to occupy gaps. They're asked to 
stay with assignments. That's what happened with Deron Payne last year. And I bucked the trend when I, when I said he was a three-down player. And he's turned out to be a three-down player for the Skins. And that's what I see with Bugs and Raekwon Davis. And then there's Quinn and Williams, who's working his way into the top ten of the draft. Great athleticism. Very explosive. Quick. Made a lot of plays on the ball in space. Nicely redirects to the ball handler. At times looked like a linebacker the way he was defending the run. The next game we'll cover it was an exciting contest in the Big 12 as West Virginia beat Texas with a two-point conversion late in the game. The game included several solid performances by middle-round picks. What did you see in this contest, Chris? I was excited to check out David Sills and Chris Boyd. And Sills had a big first half with two long touchdowns, although neither came against Boyd, as West Virginia did a nice job moving him around the formation to keep him away from the corner, and Sills did show off his high-pointing skills on that second score. When the two were matched up, though, I thought Boyd got the best of Sills. He caught four short passes against Boyd all game, but couldn't really separate deep. They were one-on-one at one point in the second half, and Will Greer put the pass on the money about 30 to 35 yards down the field, but Boyd did a great job ripping apart Sills' hands at the end to cause a drop. I was also impressed with Colton McKivitz, who had a great game and carried the WVU offensive line after Yadni Kajus was tossed. He pushed defenders around in the running game and got a ton of push off the snap, and his strong hands make it really hard to get out of his grasp once he's there. He also did a nice job in pass protection, especially when he went up against late-rounder Charles Omenahu. For his part, Omenahu wasn't exceptional, but he had a solid game. He gets nice extension to keep blockers off him, uses his hands well to shed blocks, and keeps his head up to maintain vision in the backfield and come off blocks when ball carriers change direction. Tony, what did you see from this shootout? Well, I was relatively impressed with Chris Boyd. Now, I saw some improvement from when I scouted him over the summer. He shows excellent discipline. He's instinctive. He's smart. He's very effective facing the action. He really wasn't challenged by Greer, uh, by Will Greer. I think what Boyd has to work on is something I've said all along. He's got to work on making plays with his back to the ball. But when he's facing the action, he's very effective, which means I think at the next level you could use him in zone or you could use him backed off the line of scrimmage. You know, as far as Sills is concerned, he's smart. He runs solid routes. He knows how to mentally set up and defeat opponents. He works well with the quarterback. He consistently finds the open space in, in the defense. You know, when the quarterback's in trouble, he improvises and comes back to make himself an available target. But with Sills, again, it's just does he have the physical skills to be a top 100 pick in the draft? I don't think so. He can't get separation because he doesn't have great quickness or speed. He dropped a deep pass late in the game in the end zone when the ball was in his hands. Now, you know, as I've reported before, I've heard that Dave, David Sills has small hands, small hands under nine inches, which is a red flag for receivers. And when he dropped that pass when I was watching the game, that's what I was thinking of. A very good receiver, a very polished football player, but just not a great athlete, which in my opinion does not add up to a top 100 pick as people are projecting him. Finally, Colton McKivitz was tremendous. Uh, he was a week nine riser in my column. He was dominant as a run blocker in this game. Opened up a huge hole midway through the second quarter, which led to a 55-yard touchdown round from, run for West Virginia. Fundamentally sound. Shows power. He's mobile. He's able to get out on the second level and, and take on linebackers. Very good in pass protection. When I watched the film, in my opinion, it was McKivitz who was the star of the offense for West Virginia. You know, Will Greer get a lot of headlines. David Sills will get a lot of headlines. But Colton McKivitz... Doing what he does as well as he does it allows the offense to pick up big yards and score as many points as they do. I was relatively impressed with Amenahue. 
uh, the Longhorns defensive end. He had a nice game. He's a long, thin athlete. I was impressed with his fundamentals, his mechanics, especially his hand use, the way he uses his hands to protect himself or get off blocks, made several nice plays against the run. You know, many of you is a name to remember. He's quietly having a good season, seven sacks, 11.5 tackles for loss. He's a decent upside. He's a decent athlete with a nice upside. Right now, I think of him more as a fifth-round prospect, but he could move north on, on uh, draft boards with a good postseason as well as uh, pre-draft workouts. The final game we'll review this week is Northwestern losing to Notre Dame. Tony, you've been critical of Northwestern quarterback Clayton Thorson, a prospect some believe is a second-day selection. Do you see anything in this game to change your mind? No, absolutely not. I mean, Thorson was successful when Northwestern was able to run the ball. Otherwise, I thought he struggled. He was off the mark a number of times with open receivers. He makes his receivers too hard to come away with the reception. He's got very limited mobility. He's a tall receiver, yet he had uh, passes batted. He's a bit of an enigma. I mean, he had a, a throw in the third quarter that was a beautiful deep throw into the end zone, a place that where only his pass catcher could make the reception. That brought Northwestern within 10 points of the lead, looked off the safety, was accurate. But then late in the fourth quarter, when North, Northwestern uh, needed a big drive, it's fourth and three, and he throws a two-yard pass. You know, I, I think with, with uh, Thorson, you like the physical skills, but he's just not making the plays when he has to. Thorson really seems to have only one speed on his passes. He really lacks touch on the short ball. It makes it tough on his receivers to react quickly enough and, and get their hands up in time to make the play. His ball placement down the field was erratic, and he really struggled to keep the offense on schedule. And obviously, he was going against the defense with several next-level prospects, and he does have the size and the arm strength to fit that quarterback prototype the NFL tends to look for, but otherwise, he seems to struggle. Now, before we get into some news around college football, please be sure to support the Draft Analysts by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. We're on all the big platforms, and you can also find us at Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com. Leave a rating and a review, and if you ask a question in your review, we'll do our best to answer it on the show if there's any extra time at the end. You can also tweet us at Chris Tripodi, at Tony Pauline, at Draft Analyst One, and at Believe underscore L-A to get in touch with the show as well. And now we go into our news segment and head back to the Big 12. As usual, the Oklahoma Sooners offense is flying high. Tony, last week during your weekly appearance with Fran Duffy on the Journey to the Draft podcast, you mentioned there was a 75 to 80% chance injured running back Rodney Anderson would enter the draft. Two days later, he officially declared. What's the latest on the situation? Well, Chris, first let me review what I said uh, with Fran Duffy in the Journey to the Draft podcast. You know, basically what I was told was that Fran brought up the point that there was news Anderson was not rehabbing his knee injury back at University of Oklahoma. I told him that it was about a 75 to 80 percent chance uh, that Anderson would enter the draft. And as you said, Anderson made it uh, made the public announcement two days later. Now, a couple of things. First of all, I heard the injury is not that bad in that it was a clean tear. It was a meniscus in an ACL. He's starting to rehab, and once the meniscus is healthy, he's going to start doing a lot more rehab uh, on the ACL. He's expected to be ready sooner rather than later. He's an outstanding athlete. The feeling I'm getting is Anderson will complete some sort of workout before the 2019 NFL draft. Now, it may not be at the Combine. It may not be at the Oklahoma Pro Day. He may have to have his own workout, and he may not do a full workout. He's obviously, with the knee injury, he's probably not going to do shuttles, may not do three-cone, but I think he could run a 40. I think he's going to catch passes out of the backfield, 
may do some running drills. The bottom line is this is Rodney Anderson is going to be a steal in the 2019 NFL draft outside the top 75 picks. Sticking with the Sooners, they always put good offensive linemen on the field. A fact that's often overlooked thanks to the skill position talent. Um, you know, like guys like Rodney Anderson, like last year's number one overall pick, Baker Mayfield. But these are the guys that have helped those players perform at a high level. I understand you have some news on the big blockers up front at OU as well. Yeah, the news surrounds their two offensive tackles, both underclassmen Bobby Evans and Cody Ford. I'm told that Bobby Evans will enter the draft. He started at right tackle for Oklahoma as a freshman and sophomore before moving to the left side this season. He's having a good year. He has a stout build. He's very effective in pass protection. He's strong and shows strength as a run blocker with the ability to turn defenders off the line. Right now, I have him with a late fourth round grade, although I can see Evans squeezing into the late part of round three and becoming a day two selection. The two questions I have on Evans is, can he block with consistent leverage? Because I don't see him all the time sinking his butt and playing with good knee bend. And the other thing is, is is he tall enough to play offensive tackle at the next level? He's probably going to measure at or under six foot four. There are teams who will not uh, draft the guy at tackle unless he's unless they are six four and a half or above. We saw the we saw the exception to the rule last year when the uh, Patriots took Isaiah Wynn at the end of round one as a tackle, though he's injured on the sidelines. You know, Evans has a lot to offer at the next level. Just a matter of where he will be offering it and where teams project him. The other guy is Cody Ford, who's flying up draft board. He was a riser for week nine in my column. He was a part-time starter the past two years at both guard and tackle before moving in with the first team on a full-time basis this year at right tackle. He's a massive wide-body blocker. He shows terrific strength and moves relatively well for a guy that's about 340 pounds. Um, I mentioned in my write-up, there are a lot of area scouts who feel he could land in the second day of the draft. And from what I'm being told now it's a better than 50-50 chance that Cody Ford enters the draft. Chris, the bottom line is is that the Sooners' offense will be well represented by juniors in the 2019 draft. Tony, let's move a little bit north to the MAC now and talk about two players you're hearing some buzz on. The first is Eastern Michigan's Max Crosby, a player you stamped with a sixth-round grade back on June 16th. What's the latest on the pass rusher? Yeah, I'm told right now it's about 50-50 on uh, Crosby entering the draft. He's speaking with agents, and he seems to be getting things in order to go through the process and make a final decision. I'm sure he'll get a grade from the advisory committee. I'm sure he'll be talking with his coaches and, and getting some feedback uh, from area scouts. You know, Crosby was a, was a week set, uh, seven riser. Last year in 2017, 11 sacks and 16.5 tackles for loss. In nine games this year, he's got six and a half sacks. He's got 14 tackles for loss four forced fumbles, three pass breakups, and he's blocked a kick. Really started to gain prominence in the scouting community after the San Diego State game during the first month of the season when he had eight tackles, three and a half tackles for loss, and two and a half sacks. Very athletic guy, moves well, can rush the passer, can change direction, and get out in space and make plays. Size may be an issue for him. He's listed at six foot five, two hundred and forty seven pounds, though people tell me he's likely under two hundred and forty pounds. So if he's under two forty or if he's in the low two forties, gonna have to and he does enter the draft, he's gonna have to run very well at the combine. I like him. I think if he enters the draft, he could squeeze into the second day of the draft. At the very least, he's a middle round choice, will be a situational pass rusher at the next level. You know, I've had Crosby on my radar since June, but the word is starting to spread about his next level potential. Now, another Mac underclassman that you stamped as a potential sixth-round pick was Toledo wideout Deontay Johnson. What are you hearing about him? 
I'm told uh, Deontay Johnson is very likely to enter the draft. In fact, some have told me outright that he's gone. He had considered entering the draft last year. Johnson is one of three very good receiver prospects at Toledo, uh, who, who I wrote about uh, back in June, right after doing my report on Max Crosby in Eastern Michigan. The Toledo trio consists of uh, Chris, jo- uh, Chris Thompson, the senior, who uh, was rated coming into the 2017 campaign, but missed the season with a knee injury. He's done a good job coming back from his injury. John Vay Johnson, who's a bigger receiver, also a junior. He's been slightly disappointing this year, as well as Deontay Johnson. All three of those receivers are last day picks, and I have Deontay Johnson graded as the best on my board, or the highest rate on my board. Nine games into the season, he's got uh, 33 receptions. 583 receiving yards, and an impressive seven touchdowns. He's also scored a touchdown on a, a kick return and has been a fantastic punt returner for Toledo. He goes about five foot eight, 188 pounds. He has decent but not electrifying speed. And I project him as a slot receiver or a slot type of receiver who also be a return specialist. Right now, before we know how fast he actually is, I grade him as a late sixth, early seventh round prospect. And that's all for the new segment of tonight's show. Looking ahead now to the next week of college football matchups, we'll go right back to Tuscaloosa, where Mississippi State faces off against Alabama, and we have a battle to watch in the trenches. Bulldog center Elkton Jenkins gets the privilege of going up against Quinn and Williams, who we mentioned earlier and is arguably the best lineman on a loaded Alabama defensive line. Tony, break it down for us. Yeah, everybody understandably loves Quinnen Williams of Alabama. He grades out as a top 15 selection, if not a top 10 selection. But you know what? He's going to have his toughest test of the season this week against Mississippi State when he goes head-to-head with Bulldog center Elton Jenkins. Uh, Jenkins was graded anywhere from an early second-round choice to a mid-first-round pick by scouts entering the season, and he's played up to expectation. He's a dominant center who measures about six foot four, 305 pounds. He's got long arms. He's strong at the point. He's outstanding in pass protection, anchoring uh, and protecting the quarterback. He's relatively effective moving on his feet and blocking on the second level. You know, Quinnian Williams against Elton Jenkins is an under-the-radar matchup that few are focusing on, but it's something that scouts are really going to closely monitor this Saturday. And we'll stay in the SEC for another matchup of highly rated linemen as Texas A&M and pass rusher Landis Durham face off against Old Miss, which has a tackle who has first-round potential in Greg Little. What do you want to see from each of these guys, Tony? Yeah, well, first we'll start with Durham, who's uh, really not talked about much, but he's all, he was all over the board coming into the season. Some scouts had him as a second-round pick, while others stamped him as a free agent. You know, something that ha- often happens in the early scouting process, the variety of the variation in grades. He's a terrific edge rusher with outstanding speed. He's athletic. He's mobile. He shows good quickness. He's fast up the field. He's got a good change of direction, and he's able to get out in space and make tackles. I mean, thus far this year, five sacks, seven tackles for loss, and four quarterback hurries. A little bit small for defensive end at 6'2", 255 pounds, but he's projected to run in the four sixes, so I, I don't think it'll be a problem for him to stand over tackle in a 3-4 or even come out of a uh, three-point stance on occasion as a one-gap defensive end. You know, Chris, I like Greg Little a little more than most. I think he's going to be an early selection in the draft. I think he's going to be the first tackle off the board. I think he could be a top 10 pick because the offensive tackle position is so prioritized and such a commodity on draft day. Now, some I've spoke to don't believe he can handle the left tackle duties at the next level. They think he's a right tackle or a guard. I disagree. But you know what? 
this is a chance against Landis Durham to prove that he can handle a pure edge rusher. And I think both players have a lot to gain in this contest. For our final Week 11 preview, we'll take another look at Northwestern, except we'll flip sides of the ball. Wildcats linebacker Nate Hall will have his hands full against Iowa's tight end duo of Noah Fant and TJ Hawkinson. Is that the main matchup you're looking at in this game, Tony? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nate Hall is a very under-the-radar linebacker, a guy who I, I gave a higher grades to coming into the season the scouts. I stamped him as a week one riser. He's athletic. He's swift. He can play three downs. He's solid against the run. He's good in pursuit, and he, and he can cover. In many ways, he reminds me of Fred Warner, the former BYU linebacker who was selected in the third round of last April's draft by the San Francisco 49ers. And now he's the team starting Mike linebacker. Hall has that type of athleticism, has, is similar in size, good change of direction. But he's going to be up against it trying to stop the Hawkeyes' lethal duo at tight end. The two guys you mentioned, Noah Fant, who's well-known, and Hawkinson, who's really making a name for himself, they are the top pass catchers for Iowa, running neck-and-neck neck with each other with a combined 66 receptions and 10 touchdowns. Hawkinson is over 16 yards per catch, while Fant is just under 14 yards each reception. Fant is a terrific blocker, while Hawkinson is a, is a legitimate seam stretcher. It's almost like pick your poison trying to defend either two, but it's a real good opportunity for Hall, who I think is going to surprise uh, come next April's draft. We've got questions this week as well, coming from Seth Friedman at S3Friedman on Twitter. One football-related, one not. We'll start away from the game, Tony. Did Robert Plant play an instrument other than a tambourine? The answer to that is yes, and most Zeppelin fans will know that as Robert Plant played harmonica on a number of Zeppelin albums, starting from the first album when he played it on You Shook Me, the song uh, from uh, Zeppelin II that a lot of people know, Bring It On Home. The harmonica was omnipresent there. Zeppelin Four, he played harmonica on the song, which opens and closes the show, When the Levee Breaks. Uh, Physical Graffiti, my favorite album of all time. He played harmonica on Custard Pie. And he also played it on Nobody's Fault But Mine from the uh, very underrated but outstanding Presence album, uh, Zeppelin's second-to-last studio album. Uh, he, believe it or not, he actually did play guitar in his solo tour of 1993. Um, it was a little bit awkward seeing Plant up there with a guitar strapped around him. And I, I've heard several interviews from uh, Zeppelin's bassist John Paul Jones uh, that they would occasionally come into the studio and Robert would have a, Robert Plant would have a guitar strapped around him and they would rip it away from him and tell him, you know, never try and do that again. I guess it sounded like uh, John, Paul Jones wa John Paul Jones wanted to El Cabong Robert Plant with the guitar, but uh, I don't know that John Paul Jones knows who El Cabong is. As for the draft, we'll, we'll kind of circle back here to the football world. Seth also wants to know what your assessment of Justin Herbert is. Does he go first overall to the New York football Giants if he does declare for the draft? Should he go first overall if the Giants or, you know, whichever other team is picking there? Or would the Giants be better off with someone like a Teddy Bridgewater or a Nick Foles, someone who's currently backing up another situation around the league, uh, you know, behind a starter that they're not going to supplant and, you know, could be either a long or short term answer? You know, we talked about Herbert during last week's podcast about whether he's going to stay or whether he's going to go. You know, just to rehash a little bit, he's got the size, he's got the athleticism, he's got the arm strength to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. I like his decision-making. I like the way he protects the ball and, for the most part, stays away for, uh, from bad passes. I am concerned about Herbert's inability to come through in the big spot. 
He did not play well in the loss to Boise State when uh, Oregon lost the Vegas Bowl last December. The past four games, he's not played well. Did not play well against Washington. Did not play well against uh, Washington State or Arizona and or and UCLA. And of those four teams, really, it's only Washington that has serious next-level prospects on defense. The Washington State, Arizona, and UCLA defense are nothing to write home about. My other concerns as far as Herbert and the New York Giants is something I mentioned a week ago. I'm told he's a bit of an introvert socially. He comes from the Eugene, Oregon area, and he likes it there. You know, how would he take to a big market arena like New York City if the Giants uh, selected him? And, and that's truly a wild card that you can't gauge until he gets here. The Giants are going to find themselves in a similar situation in April of 19, comparable to the one they found themselves last April. I mean, the best player on the board when they are called to the clock isn't going to be a quarterback. If they're drafting near the top, where we all expect, it's either going to be Nick Bozer or Ed Oliver. And let me say that the spread between a Nick Bozer or an Ed Oliver and a Justin Herbert is significantly larger than the spread between Saquon Barkley and whomever the Giants had as their number one rated quarterback, whether it be Josh Allen or Sam Darnold. You know, I think the Giants at the top of the draft should take the best player available, likely going to be a defensive lineman, bring in a veteran, and then maybe later on in the draft, look for a Ryan Finley or another developmental quarterback. I very much believe in Pat Schumer's ability to, to, to develop a quarterback, whether it be uh, a veteran that sat on the bench, as we saw he did with Case Keenum, whether it be a, uh, a rookie that's they don't have to take at the top of the draft. Yeah, and this is kind of the debate that you see these days in the NFL, where the quarterbacks being a pass-heavy league and, and being you know what they mean to teams, they're getting pushed up boards. And you, know, you can argue that a lot of the guys that went early in this past year's draft went earlier than their talent level would um, you know, kind of say that they should go. But at the same time, teams are trying to fill this important position. And if they do, they can kind of ignore it for 10 to 15 years if they do hit. So while the temptation is there to take a guy like Herbert, you know, you can you can argue and it's kind of the consensus thought that he's not on the same level as the, the guys that were taken at the top last year. And there is some strong talent on the defensive line, Bosa and Oliver, as you mentioned, as well as Quinn and Williams, who we discussed earlier. There's going to be huge talent on the defensive line early in the draft. And the fact is, this is, you know, we haven't we're having this conversation and giant fans are upset because the Giants took Saquon Barkley over Sam Darnold. And that's only because the team that shares the stadium with the Giants, the New York Jets, are having some success with Sam Darnold. The fact is, this is Saquon Barkley was the best player in last year's draft, and he's playing like the best player in last year's draft. Yeah, you've got to be very careful because we're only a few months into the season and people or Giant fans are disappointed with Saquon. Not that they're not disappointed with Saquon Barkley. They're disappointed that the Giants didn't take a quarterback. Well, you know what? Jameis Winston, Cam Newton, uh, these, these guys early in their career look like franchise quarterbacks. But over the course of time, they've not proven to be franchise quarterbacks. Then you got Jared Goff, who, you know, as, as a rookie, looked like an absolute bust. And look at the type of quarterback he's turned out to be. So you never really know. But the bottom line for me is this, and I'll go back to it. People get all excited, you know, on draft weekend with their team's results. But all they are are names on a piece of paper. I firmly believe that if you bring in the right guy, that right guy doesn't have to be a top five pick. Pat Shermer can develop a quarterback can develop him to play at the next level. So whether it's Ryan Finley in round two, whether it's 
and a, a veteran that they're able to trade for or sign a free agency. You know, I, I would hedge on taking a Justin Herbert at the top of the 2019 draft and passing on a potentially dominant impact defensive player like Nick Boza. And that's all we have for you here tonight on another episode of The Draft Analysts presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform and leave us a rating and a review. And also feel free to send us questions to answer on the show like we just did for Mr. Seth Friedman a little bit earlier. As always, head over to draftanalyst.com for all the latest around the college football landscape. And for Tony Pauline, I'm Chris Tripodi. We'll see you next week.